Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour, episode number two. My name's Dan Wood. And I'm Ravi Abbott. And if you didn't catch the show last week, we're basically a brand new podcast that's going to be here every single Friday we're getting released. A perfect little treat for the weekend, talking about all the biggest retro gaming and technology stories of the week. And we're aiming to have a special guest on most weeks as well. And it's a big one this week, isn't it, Ravi? Yeah, I'm just going to say war's never been so much fun. <laughs> it is John Hare from Sensible Software who's going to be coming on talking about, obviously, all of those classic games that came up back in the 16-bit days. Cannon fodder... Sensible Soccer, Megalomania, and also talking about this um, really interesting new project he's got on the go at the moment. Essentially, he's making a new game that's going to be cross-platform, and it's really the the spiritual successor to Sensible Soccer, isn't well, it? Well, I remember Sensible Soccer was known for years as the number one football game. You know, it was the best way to play football. So if this comes back, it could be very interesting. <laughs> it's still got a scene now, Sensible Soccer, hasn't it? Yeah, you know, people, people are still updating yeah. it. It's crazy. <laughs> so uh, John Hare on in about 35, 40 minutes from now. But before that, should we go through the big news stories of the week? Yeah, let's check out some stuff. And uh, first, we're going to follow on from what we were talking about last week, which was old retro consoles. So these are consoles that can basically play the retro systems. You know, you can have your carts in there. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a new one that's been developed, and this is through Kickstarter, and it's called the Indigo. And this is basically a DVD drive with a Raspberry Pi 2 in there, and that's it. You, you, know. <laughs> you can do anything on a Raspberry Pi, though, can't yeah, you? Yeah, that's and uh, this system's designed for this kind of CD area. So we're moving on from the emulation of carts to the CD era. And this is uh, Amiga CD32, the Sony PlayStation, Sega Saturn, Sega CD, Turbo Graphics, and more systems. Now, looking at this, what it is essentially, it's uh, a Raspberry Pi in a funky black box with a DVD-ROM drive in there, isn't it? Yeah. And a controller, but um, and I'm looking the HDMI out as a Raspberry Pi always does. Yeah, um, but the good thing about this is, I mean, if you you know you can obviously build your own emulation system using a Raspberry Pi if you know you're technically minded and you can mm. set it all. But looking at this, it says if you've got an original Amiga CD32 or Sony PlayStation disc, you put it in and it will boot. It would just play straight away. Yeah, yeah, there's no finding the ROMs, all of this kind of transferring files over. You know, and the thing is about the Raspberry Pi as well. I mean, it's such a, a versatile platform, and there's even that. Um, you know, the, the latest model of the Raspberry Pi, that one that was really cut down, mm. I think it's meant to be dirt cheap, like five quid. Uh, what's it called, the Raspberry Pi Zero? Uh, yeah, that was it, the Zero, and it was actually given away free on a magazine, which <laughs> yeah, is insane. That blew my mind. Now, this came out just before Christmas, didn't it? Yeah. Um, and they've got an official Raspberry Pi magazine called Magpie. And yeah, they did actually cover mount the motherboard from a Raspberry Pi Zero, the latest model. I went to find it in shops. There were other nerds, you could see them. They were looking for this magazine because I'd heard about it as well. And they were kind of, we were all searching for it, but they were sold out everywhere. Couldn't get it for loving the money, could you? No. But I remember, because, you know, obviously I've, I've got a Raspberry Pi 1 and 2 anyway, but I thought if the fact that it's given away in a magazine and, you know, people of our era remember when you got a cover disc on the front of a magazine, yeah. and that was a big deal. Even before that, you had the um, old floppy vinyl. Yeah, I used to yeah. cut them out. Vinyl. I remember getting those on cereal boxes. Yeah. yeah. And then cassettes, and then... Um, when it came to like CD-ROMs, I was like, whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah wow, DVDs. And now you get a whole computer giving yeah. away in the front of a mag. But that was actually kind of tragic in a way because, you know, it's kind of like when that Amiga book came out last year. People, I think people were hoarding it. Yeah, yeah people know. go in, they'll, they'll buy out the entire stock of WH Smith, whack them on eBay for like 20, 30 quid. Yeah, mark it up, you know. Kind of tragic, really, but cause the day when that magazine came out, I, I called around all the local Tesco's and... Um, you know, because it said it was stocked in Asda as well. Yeah. One of my local one, the guy's like, what, you're about the 10th per person today who's asked about that? And no, we haven't got any in, I'm afraid. But. And, and it's kind of a crazy story, the kind of success of Raspberry Pi, because it was initially aimed, 
we we had a computer called the BBC in the UK, which yeah. was a Acorn, wasn't Acorn, it? yeah, and that was distributed to all the schools, and it was we had this great program of you know educating the kids on how to program. So they decided to redo this with this small Raspberry Pi, but then suddenly all these non-school kids were buying it and using it for crazy projects. So it's essentially the ultimate hacker's machine, though, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, uh, it's it's really good, and I've actually got an Arduino, which is a kind of another hacking hardware device, and if you work that alongside the Raspberry Pi. You're invincible. <laughs> You're yeah, unstoppable. Ravi's, Ravi's been inhaling uh, solder vapor all week, haven't you? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that device you've got then? Tell us a bit more about that. Um, I've Okay, so it's called the DIY Gamer Kit, and I got it for Christmas, mm-hmm. and it's by uh, a group called Technology Will Save Us. And it's basically like they're selling all these little kits that you can solder yourself and create your own little system. So they have a synthesizer as one of them. Oh, wow. Uh, this one's a gaming kit. You know, there's loads on their shop. And you can kind of program your own games in. So this is a very simple handheld Game Boy style device. Uh, you can program Snake games in there, you know. And this is all soldering and using the hardware to do it. It's it's really good, you know. They've got a speaker kit as well and stuff. I just love the fact that, I mean, you think of when home computers started, you know, here in the UK, it was like the ZX Spectrum and that. And even before that, it was like, I think the ZX80 had to build yourself and stuff like that. Yeah. It was all kit computers. And it wasn't America with the old Sarah and that. But the fact that that kind of era of building your own kit and coding it from scratch, you know, is coming back. Is Well, well, then it was a necessity. Mm-hmm. Now it's a luxury. People are building stuff for the joy of building it. Before, they didn't have it pre-assembled. They were, you know, <laughs> trapped soldering. <laughs> but even going back to that Raspberry Pi project, the fact that you can now make your own little emulation station, and that is going to sell for 150 quid with a DVD-ROM drive in there. Yeah. All set up for you. Or you can download their software for 25 uh, euros, I think. Yeah, and it. it's got Kodi in it as well, which was the Xbox Media Center before, so you can... You know, just use it to stream TV, it's 1080p, great there, yeah. you know. And, and stuff that other guys I've seen doing with, like, the Raspberry Pi, there's people that build, like, weather stations with it. Oh, yeah, lots of weather stations, actually. <laughs> I've seen those. So. Well, they've even made a handheld console like that, the Pi Boy. Yeah, yeah. Which is a, another one. Yeah. So it's a brilliant platform, but, yeah, this is, you know, one of the, the latest interesting uses from the Raspberry Pi. And uh, moving on to uh, old consoles that have been re-released, or old computers, actually, the ZX Spectrum's back. Now, you may have heard about this. Um, It's basically a recreated ZX Spectrum. And uh, did you watch Charlie Brooker's um, 2015 wipe on TV? Yeah, I did, actually, but I don't remember this being in there. Well, there was one little scene where he's talking about um, watching TV and he goes, things you need. He's like, so I've got my bucket of popcorn, I've got my ZX Spectrum, and he held it up in the air. Ah, This is actually the... Because he's uh, an old classic gamer, isn't he? He loved the Spectrum, Charlie Brooker, yeah. yeah. So this is what it it essentially is. It's fully authorised. It's a recreation, if you look at it, of the original Rubberkey ZX Spectrum, the keyboard is the same kind of dead flesh feel, I think they call it. So this isn't the Vega that we talked about last week, which so was... The Vega's like, a th- it's got three keys on, hasn't it, the Vega? That's yeah, it's a really kind of mini Spectrum. Yeah. No, yeah. this is different. This is essentially what it is, is a Bluetooth keyboard. Oh, that looks like an original Spectrum. Can there be that many Spectrum fans? <laughs> well, the way this works, well, this has been selling really well. Didn't you say in Amazon they're selling one every five minutes? Wow. Or something. That's, that's the article you sent But yeah, I, you know, it's pretty cheap. You can buy this. And what it does, it, it hooks up to, you can, you, know, you can have your, your tablet there, for example. Mm. And you can then have this little Spectrum recreation in front of it. Use the tablet as like a screen and then control it from the keyboard. It's like having a portable ZX Spectrum. So you could be sitting on the train uh, with your iPad and then you whip out this Spectrum as a keyboard. That's great. (laughs) Play Manic Money on the train. So uh, No wonder they've been selling. But it's really cool. And actually, there's there's a video on YouTube with the guy who originally designed the Rubberkeed Spectrum. 
and he gives his verdict on what he thinks of it, and he goes, you know, look at it, you, you can barely tell it apart, you know. It's, uh, well, it's around £90 here on eBay. Yeah, so... Uh, so uh, it must be good as well, because it's got a very high rating. Now, essentially, like I said, it's a Bluetooth keyboard that, you know, it, it links to an iOS or Android app. Mm. Um, they do supply quite a lot of games with it when you buy it as well that you can download straight away. Uh, but also, I mean, the fact that it's a Bluetooth keyboard, it's an open platform as well. I presume you could play, you know, Grand Theft Auto V using it if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you probably could. <laughs> That's crazy. Just looking at the back, it's got, uh, you know, USB powered mm-hmm. and uh, all the kind of modern stuff. So obviously, if you're interested, all the notes will be in the, uh, the podcast show notes, uh, as we do every week. Now, the next one's been a pretty big deal in the Amiga scene, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. We're old Amiga guys, so, you know, you'll hear a lot about Amiga in this podcast, but this is a... Uh, a kind of a very important story. Now, a few years ago, there, I'd heard that there was a leak of the source code of OS 3.1. This now, is the Amiga operating system, isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. which has always been closed, which is actually, a lot of people have said this has actually prevented development of the operating system because it's been closed, they haven't licensed it, and it's it's been kept within companies. So it's up to those companies to kind of deliver the OS, you mm-hmm. know, uh, when people have tried to contribute, they, they can't. And this is what's happened is the source code's basically been leaked, which is uh, very interesting because Hyperion did a statement on it this week and Hyperion are the current owners of OS 3.1 source code. They're the ones and, who make OS 4 as well, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. which is based on mm-hmm. OS 3.1 code as well. And... Um, they're not happy. No. <laughs> that is, they're saying this is an infringement of their copyright, which uh, it is, and not to distribute it. Now, I've heard a lot of things about the distribution of it, and I've heard that there's basically a lot of code in there, the source code that was going for later Amiga projects. Mm-hmm. So I think it might be an interesting document for that, but I don't know, Dan, what do you think? Do you think they'll be able to do anything with it or a new free version of the OS? Or? Well, this um, this actual distribution has been around for a long time. I, yeah, this is what I thought. It was two years or f- three this, years this ago. This was in the late 90s. This was on Usenet yeah. back then. I think costs, you know when OS 3.9 came out, that kind of came out, if you're not familiar with the Amiga scene, there was... Um, it was developed by a third-party company, officially licensed back Hagen in around... But, yeah, 2000, it? Yeah. wasn't it, it came out. And there was a guy who basically had a job of taking... When Commodore went bankrupt, um, ESCOM were the company that took over. They got all of the, um, you know, the backup tapes from Commodore servers. And the source code was on there. And there's a guy whose job it was, Olaf his name is... Um, no relation to the the snowman from Frozen, <laughs> uh, but it was his uh, his his job to clean up the source code ready for OS three point five okay. and three point nine, okay. and he's he's commented on the forum saying this is not the source code that he got from Escom, this is actually an earlier one that came from Commodore. Ah. By the looks of it, so what? By the looks of what happened here is someone who's working for Commodore in like the last couple of weeks before they went under, did a copy of this off the servers on a tape, buggered off with it, and then uploaded it somewhere. Like I think this was dates from about ninety four ninety five. It's kind of interesting that uh, people even bother to leak these things. <laughs> no, I, I think, you know, obviously the, the Amiga's operating system is legendary and the fact that, you know, th- this code here mm. is 22 years old now. And yeah. really, you know, I understand that there's copyright reasons and all that, but this archive, hands up, I've got it. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. yeah. I've, I've had a look through it and there is some interesting stuff there, but it's incomplete. So yeah. it's not like you can compile it and apparently... The kit that you need to compile this is like a very specific 1980s Sun workstation that Commodore <laughs> some, ran. Some strange model. Or, yeah, it's you got know. like some Unix compiler and all that. Yeah. So not the kind of stuff you can do in like UAE or anything like that. Mm. So really, I mean, it, no one's going to do anything with it. It's purely... It's kind of interest. like they're protecting their own interests. Like, 
but it hasn't gone down well on the forums. I think you look at Hyperion released this statement. That I don't think Hyperion's well. statement's gone down well no. because essentially it's saying, you know, stop doing this mm-hmm. and it's kind of knocking on the classic people a bit. And, uh, you know, they're only interested in it for the historical reasons. Mm. They're not going to recreate the OS. That's already been done. That's Morphos and Aeros, <laughs> yeah. you know? So, And I think you know, a lot of the, the guys who love the old like Amiga 500 and 1200 haven't got a lot of interest in the PowerPC mm. and OS4 stuff. So, Well, that's what they say, that the, the value that is left in Amiga mm. is the patents. Yeah. You know, people, Even a lot of those have expired now as well. Well, people they? said that um, the SCOM... Mm-hmm bought the Amiga so that they could have the right click or the left click on the mouse, you know, because of that patent. That was seen in the eyes of the business people as a valuable thing, I guess, so they've got to defend it. And it's their one product that they make, isn't it, Hyperion? So, you know. I can understand from both sides, but I've looked through the source code and there is, like, some interesting stuff in there. Do you remember a project called the CD1200? Yes. And that was a CD-ROM drive for the Amiga 1200. Yes. In the source code, there's all the drivers and everything for it, and there's comments talking about how it boots and all that. There's, like, text documents and... uh, Yes, how, how it actually could have worked. Yeah, yeah and there's also a CD32 emulator on there, like the source code, you know, for developers and stuff oh like that. God. So okay. there's some interesting stuff yeah. in there. Obviously, we won't be providing links. No, no, because there was some interesting. <laughs> uh, I remember talking to RJ Michael, and he mm-hmm. said that the um, Atari Lynx was all developed in a virtual machine on the Amiga. Oh, really? So yeah, yeah uh, I think the Amiga was developed on Sun Systems, like I said. So yeah. you know. Yeah, interesting, but um, yeah, I, th- I think that's kind of a debate that will uh, rage forever in the Amiga Yeah, scene. we'll probably be going on about this every week. It's <laughs> like these kind of stories with Amiga, they last for years, and they get more and more controversial. So, <laughs> Well, you mentioned RJ Michael. He was obviously uh, after the Amiga. What was his next big project? The 3DO company, Oh, yes, that? yes, that was the 3DO. And I've found a little story for Dan that he might find interesting because he's uh, got a 3DO himself. I've got two, actually. Yeah, <laughs> there you go, two You're different too versions. Many. And if you want to see the worst version of Doom ever in history, they have posted a picture, Rebecca Heinemann. Yeah, she was a coder, um, wasn't she? Yeah, the coder. She does a. She's done a lot of videos on Matchat as well. I remember, and she's released a video of the FMV of Doom. Oh God! And my God! Now, for context, you know, obviously this was back in, like, 94, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was that time when, you know, CD-ROM technology was really just taking off and everyone used it for full-motion video intros, didn't they, on their games? But, yeah, looking at this, it looks like a bad B-movie, doesn't it? It Yeah, it looks really bad, and they've kind of got the green screen in the background. And, yeah, I remember Rebecca Heinemann. She was from Bard's Tale. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. uh, yeah. Well, her, her port of Doom is generally considered to be one of the worst ports of Doom. On the 3DO, it runs at about like 10 frames a second. Really? It runs really badly, but she also released... Um, there's a video of it actually playing on YouTube, and Rebecca's commented on it, yeah. saying that, yeah, she ad- admits it's a really crap version, but apparently she, she did it in like a couple of weeks. Okay. And she was just really, really limited time constraints, and, you know, the basically the software house, right, just rush it out, get it out there now, we need it out on the, on the market before she had time to optimise it and tidy it up. You can't really so. mess up Doom as well. <laughs> it's, well yeah, it's one of those you know, games, isn't it, you know, nice. and... Uh, yeah, so historically, it's. I think now the 3DO version is considered even worse because you've got this full motion. <laughs> maybe video. maybe they should find the uh, intro and slap it on just to give it the. Uh... <laughs> make yeah, if, if you can't make it good, make it even worse. Yeah, yeah, make the absolute rubbish version of it. And uh, this is another thing that's been uncovered recently. Then, uh, ID Software obviously, you know, were behind Doom. Did you know they were responsible for porting Super Mario Brothers three to the PC? Yes. Yes. Um... Super Mario Brothers, this was initially John Carmack and John Romero's idea was, 
we want to show scrolling on the PC, mm-hmm. and the only way we can show scrolling is by putting a really popular game on and showing all those kind of naysayers that say the PC wasn't able to do it. Mm-hmm. So they did a full port of Super Mario 3, like a full port, and then sent it to Nintendo. That was the first ID software product, and uh, Nintendo rejected them. <laughs> See, most people think like Commander Keen for the first game that really showed off, you know, what you could do with, yeah. you know, the old school Well, PC, that's what but... this, uh, the scrolling in this port was actually used on Commander Keen later. That was... You know the influence of it. Now they've uploaded a video, so you can you can watch it. What do you think? Have you watched the video? Yeah, it looks really good. It does. Uh, the flying's not so good on it mm-hmm. with the um, raccoon tail, yeah. but it's actually quite funny because he just kind of goes <laughs> in a mad angle. And it's the EGA graphics, isn't it? I yeah, it yeah. Up. And you know, you, you watch this, and you can tell it's an early product and you know there's no music or anything like that and the sound effects are all pc speaker based yeah um but you know it's, it's impressive looking at that i remember i had friends that had you know dos pcs like in the early 90s and they'd look at the amiga where their jaw dropped you know what it could do yeah. and uh this is actually a very faithful port you know it, it looks as good as it did on the on the nes i think no it's it's very smooth as well it's very playable you know <laughs> should we talk about a new amiga game now Oh yes, let's talk about a new Amiga game. Now yeah. this is this is actually quite rare. We never usually talk about new Amiga games, especially <laughs> ones that are platform exclusive to the Amiga as well. And is this modern Amiga or old uh, uh, classic? This is classic Amigas. Cla- wow. Yeah. Okay. So um, this is a game that will Even run rare. on any Amiga with an O20 CPU okay. and at least one megabyte of memory. So we're talking like you know this would run on a, a stock Amiga 1200 or, or a CD32, and it's a game that I originally thought it was meant to be called Tanks Fury. Okay. But if you look at spell F-U-R-R-Y. Tanks Furry. Tanks, I thought Tanks Furry. <laughs> <laughs> but the developer's been talking on uh, some of the forums, and he's been like, uh, you know, but the tanks are really cute and stuff, so I think it is actually meant to be Tanks Furry. Okay. And I'm looking at it now, it looks absolutely amazing. So basically what it's going to be, it's a game that comes out in uh, February, so next month it's going to be out, and Pixel Nation have done this amazing animated video. Oh, at the beginning, yes. A trailer, yeah. And the game itself looks loads of fun. You basically play, it's a four-player game. Yeah. And uh, it's just a little like a tank war game where you destroy each other, but you've got some like, you know, really cool elements in the map. Like you yeah, go through a tunnel and come out the other side. And... If, if you've seen a game called Retro Rampage, which was recently done, uh, which was kind of released for 486 PCs and all the older formats, it's kind of got that same comical style. And it, it looks like it would have been an absolute smash hit if it was uh, out in, say, 93 or 94. Well, I've been reading a bit how, how they made it as well. It's, you know, pure, pure assembly. It's made in as well, fully oh, optimised for the Amiga. So. And it's going to be offered as a free download, so anyone can get it. And also wow. they're going to have a commercial release as well, where it comes boxed with a CD-ROM that the same will probably be on a CD32. So it's already 2016 and we're yeah. already getting one brand new game. This is and also good. it'll have some floppy disk labels in there as well if you want to make your own ADMs ah, and put them on discs. So, excellent. Uh, yeah, it's You're awesome. You're getting me excited now. I mean, we need to so do a Tanks for a uh, review. But looking at this, the fact that as well, you know, it's a four-player game. And I don't know about you, but growing up with uh, an Amiga and my friends, around, the most exciting Amiga memories are sitting there having two joysticks or two control pads, having your mates around, having tournaments. To, and... to me, that's multiplayer gaming. You know, everyone talks about online gaming. It's totally different. You know, nothing beats having your mates around or playing, you know, Mortal Kombat or Micro Machines. <laughs> it's yeah. great. Well, this, you know, the fact that it's four players as well, you can have, you know, I'd imagine you'd probably need some kind of 
you know, there's parallel interfaces you can get with more ports on to do that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, some, or even system linked to Amigas, I guess. Some, some big fat extension. <laughs> so, well, yeah, the game's called uh, Tanks Fury. We'll, uh, we'll pop a link in the show notes as well, but definitely want to support, like I said, you know, completely free. We'll run on an Amiga 1200 CD32 and there'll be a commercial release as well. I've heard um, a few guys on the forums have been saying, why don't you put a download link, or, uh, a donate link on the free version, you know, if people want to say thank you. I so. would pay for that. Absolutely, yes, I'll be yes. buying the uh, the commercial release. And uh, next up, we have a friends of yours, Dan, actually, the mm-hmm. guys that make the EverDrive. Cricks. Yes, they are releasing the EverDrive for the Game Boy Advance. Now, for people who don't know what an EverDrive is... Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a cart that you could stick an SD card in that will preload up all the files you've put on there and load it just like the original cart, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's so big, you can have pretty much every single game. So you could have your Game Boy Advance, every single game in a cart, bam, select the game, go. It's great. Eventually, they're supporting more and more platforms. I really want them to do an Atari Jaguar one, though. Oh, yeah. That That's would a be one good. platform that they haven't done yet. But Do you think it's because the carts are very oddly shaped or maybe well, I think or the hardware's? <laughs> they do offer just bare board EverDrive, so you can actually make your own carts around yeah. it. But, you know, you've got to basically dismantle an old cart, you know, a crap game or something yeah. and use that. But a lot of people have been asking him to do one, but he basically doesn't think there's enough demand for the Jag. It's qu- they're quite expensive, aren't they, as well? They are. I mean, um, you know, props to the guys from Retro Towers have actually given me a few to uh, review on my YouTube channel. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got them for the N64. I've got one for my Sega Mega Drive. Um, NES, NES, N- you know, pretty much all of my cart-based systems apart from the Jag. Mm. I've got um, EverDrives for. And for someone like me, who I- I'm not really a game collector, you know, I-, I don't care about having all the original games on the shelf and stuff like that, but... I do like to play in the original systems with the original control pad. And this, you know, an EverDrive, it's not emulation. No, no, I'm, yeah. I'm just looking now on retrotowers.co.uk, which mm-hmm. is a site, and, you know, they've got the 64. Yeah. Yeah, they've got the SNES one, the NES, the Game Boy. It's pretty much Vextrex, you know? It's like <laughs> every system, pretty Apart from much. the Jag. Yeah, apart from the, the Jag. <laughs> but, yeah, so what you essentially do is you download all the ROMs, you know, off the internet, obviously providing that you own the original games and uh, are not infringing copyright. Um, and then you dump them onto an SD card, and then you basically get this menu where you select with your, your control pad, press start, it loads it into the flash memory of the cart, and then as far as the system's concerned, you've got an original cartridge in there. Uh, and, you know, you're looking here, and you're looking, and it's £130 for mm-hmm. the... EverDrive for the N64. Mm-hmm. Now, £130 is expensive, but for every single game on one cart that's going to play perfectly, yeah, I think that's worth it. There know? are N64 games that go for double that. Yeah, exactly. You know, you know so. And also, if you're a games collector and you don't want to wreck your games, mm-hmm. you can just have this one cart and leave everything sealed in. <laughs> well, I've got a friend who does that. Yeah, basically, he's got all his original games at his dad's place and he doesn't want to, you know use them too much he's a bit of a you know pristine collector and stuff yeah. but he has ever drives for all his systems and for the daily grind of just playing them and stuff you know so you don't wear out your, your original cartridges and stuff so I yeah, think they're amazing spill tea on your original copy of a game <laughs> or something but uh, you know there are I, I often get comments in my YouTube video people saying oh you know I'm not paying that much for like you know 130 quid it's a rip off but like you said how much would it cost if you were to buy the entire mm-hmm. N64 library or, or even if you were to get CD-ROMs yeah. and just burn it and then the bandwidth and you know all of this is, is so complex it's just a very nice solution but also open it up a bit more as well, like the one that you get for the Mega Drive. Do you remember on the Mega Drive there was that, um, I think it was called a Master Base Adapter, so you could play Sega yeah, Master System yeah, games? Yeah. Well, actually, inside the Mega Drive, all the hardware of the Master System's in there already. Yeah, yeah. 
So all, I, the, all that Powerbase does is adapt the pins. But with the EverDrive, you can download and play my system game straight on the on the Mega Drive. That's crazy. Yeah, without any <laughs> emulation or anything. But also, I guess you can have trainers on there. You can have homebrew mm-hmm. games. You can have uh, you know versions imports and stuff that didn't come out in the country, different regions. Well, there have been yeah. some kind of, you know, unreleased games have been uh, leaked, like, for example, um, Putty Squad. That's oh, just come out in the yeah. Mega Drive. They just, just released it last wow. month. So you can now download that if you've got an EverDrive. We could we could talk about that for a second. If you guys don't know about Putty Squad, it was a game by System Free. Mm-hmm. This was, Putty was the original game, which was, a you're a kind of ball of putty that can absorb people. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> You could absorb other putty putties and kind of uh, get more skills. But this game was uh, notoriously not released for a long time, wasn't mm-hmm. it? And uh, they said a few, uh, I think it was a year ago, that um, we've actually got the original Master Disc and everyone didn't believe them. I know, Dan, you were doubting it a lot. <laughs> oh, well, I, I remember. I mean, you know, the original Putty game, I loved that. I had it when I was a kid. And then, um, yeah, Putty Squad was the sequel. It did actually come out on the Super Nintendo. But I think that okay. was the only platform they released it on, and there was Mega Drive, uh, a Mega Drive version and an Amiga version. Mm. But we're talking, I think it was about like ninety, late ninety four, ninety five, and obviously, you know, the, the I think of, there was a demo version that was released. There was, for yeah, the Amiga. That uh, was on a the couple run. of magazines had it, yeah. and a few magazines back then actually reviewed the full game. Now, this, you know, if you look on English Amiga board, there are threads that date back to like you know ninety nine, two thousand people saying you know Amiga Power and Amiga Format reviewed it, so there must be an original out there. And there was pretty much a 15-year hunt for this source code. Loads of people saying, oh, it's never going to happen, never mm. going to happen, it doesn't exist. And then, you know, out of the blue, like, I think it was Christmas before last, yeah. wasn't it? It, it was on a DAT tape, wasn't it? Is that how they found it? Yeah, yeah it was on a DAT tape. Uh, they found a DAT tape and it was actually stored on that. But um, they'd also kind of released a new version of Putty Squad, a remake. Yeah. So they managed to, whilst releasing the remake, put the original one in. That was good uh, timing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that was really good timing (laughs) that they happened to find it. But yeah, I got got it on the PS4 because I wanted to play the Amiga version for so long and the fact that they gave it away is like a Christmas gift and I'd just got a PS4 then Yeah. and I thought, you know, to support them and say thank you. You know, the PS4 version was only about 15 quid. Yeah. So I thought I'd buy that as a thank you to them. Actually, the PS4 version is really good, so... Oh, I'll have a go on it. It's out on the Mega Drive now as well, though, so if you're um, interested. That nicely brings us on to remakes, which is uh, one thing that we're covering recently, which is kind of remakes of classic games that Mm -hmm. they're doing at the moment. And we've talked about Final Fantasy VII, but there's also Shenmue Three, which is going to be coming along. Another game that people thought would never happen. Yeah, and a Dreamcast amazingly big title, wasn't it? Probably the best game at number two, especially. I love on the Dreamcast. Yeah, it was a a very big adventure one. And also, um, uh, Banjo-Kazooie, they've got the spiritual successor, which is, oh, let me try and say this, Yoke Yaley. (laughs) But they basically generated £2 million to fund that on Kickstarter. Kickstarter's the way to do it now, though, isn't it? It proves the demands there for, you know, these developers who before would have to put something out and kind of, you know, rely on gut feeling yeah. and a bit of market research. But and if it didn't work, they'd lose all the money with Kickstarter. But also, I've noticed a lot of companies are now just putting it up on Kickstarter initially, seeing if they get the funding. If they don't get the funding, they're just, oh, we'll do it anyway. <laughs> you know, well, so not- they kind of had the plans in place. They just thought they'd give Kickstarter a go. <laughs> but not to kind of, you know, piss on anyone's chips, as the old expression goes. But um, there is actually... There's an Amiga game at the moment that I've I've seen on Kickstarter, and it's getting quite a bit of support, actually. But it's essentially, it looks pretty unfinished at the moment. It's actually an Amos game. Oh, is this that uh, Dreams of yeah, Rowan? Or Rowan, yeah, yeah that's yeah. the one. I've seen it. I mean, I've got to say, you know, it's great that someone's making a new Amiga game. From what I've seen, it doesn't look 
it kind of looks. Do you remember Amiga Format magazine? Mm-hmm. Do you remember they had a CD-ROM and you'd submit like. Home. C, C, uh, no, do you mean AFCD? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they do like you know game of the month where people write little games in Amos. Yeah, and PD it, game. It looks a bit like it looks a bit like a PD game to be fair. And and then obviously we talked about that Tanks Furry game before, which actually looks like a proper commercial release, and they're giving that one mm. away for free. I mean, obviously it's down to every developer if they yeah. want to charge for their project or not. But that is getting some support on there at the moment. But it kind of seems like you know a lot of fans will just kind of. Bang well, I've, I've just realised something that's really actually uh, quite amazing. Mm. Um, the people that have made the Indigo are Amiga people. Oh, they really? are the Ares people. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. I've, I've just looked. It says by Ares Computer. So um, Ares, for years they've been making these kind of boxes for emulation mm-hmm. that have been quiet and they've never really got much attention. So I'm quite pleased about this Indigo. But I'm just looking at Kickstarter at the moment and... Pretty much every Amiga project's been funded to massive amounts. <laughs> like, it seems to be. It kind of proves there is still a market there as well for these. Um, for these old systems. Yeah, and these yeah. Old, oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, how many consoles and computers would you say you have? Oh, I think I've probably got 12 at the last count because I'm just 12. moving house it's at the moment. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think we did a count before Christmas. I think I've got about, it's up in the 50s, about 54, 55. Oh, my God, Dan. How does your flat cope? <laughs> and, uh, well, that's the thing. We, we had a big clean out over Christmas. And literally, I, out of my home office, I've got, well, you know, I've got to keep all my stuff in there. Yeah. So I don't piss the missus off too much. And yeah. I got five black bags. Oh, out my. of there just old like you know crappy graphics cards and wires and stuff and just you know yeah. and I, I've traded in a load of old because you know I've got Everdrive as I said for all my yeah, uh, yeah. systems and that now I've actually traded a load of cartridges in today but I was actually reading a topic on Lemon64 which is a website about the Commodore 64 mm-hmm. and they've got a debate going at the moment is it collecting or is it hoarding ah that now this is a good one because I'm as I said just moving out mm-hmm. and I'm wanting to put my collection in a dedicated computer room but, so there'll uh, be more room. Yeah, so there'll be more room, but <laughs> I've got to get rid of all the bits and bobs that I've hated. So I've, you know, been tirelessly listing stuff on eBay because mm-hmm. I don't want to get trapped in the hoarding area. I want to be a collector. So. Now, I'll admit, I, I, I don't know when you cross the line, though. I mean, I, I think I look online and there are guys that have got like, you see pictures and they've got about 40 Amiga 500s on a shelf. Yeah, or like, you know, 60 Sega Dreamcasts yeah. in original boxes. And. I don't know, if you're not a company and not selling it, what's the point? Like, I personally think if they're running, yeah, that's fine. But if they're sitting there stored up like a kind of warehouse of obsolescence... <laughs> and in a way, obsolete. it's sad as well, because there are people that would play those machines and would like to own one. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, it's, it's interesting, because what are these people hoarding them for? You know eventually all the people that would be interested in that machine will probably die and there'll be a museum that will be interested in it and that's about it, you know, so it can't be for profit. See, you know, I, like I said before, I've got about 50, 50 odd systems but they're all kind of machines, that I, you know, they're only, I've only got one of each mainly apart from the 3DO and the uh, Amiga CD32 yeah. which is some reason I've got two of each. <laughs> yeah, basically I've only got one of each system and they are, I do kind of use them all, you know, they're not all set up at the same time. Yeah, and, and you rotate them, you bring out different ones and stuff. Yeah, I'll be yeah. like, you know, I fancy playing a Sega Saturn game this weekend so we'll get the Saturn set up in front of the TV for, you know, a couple of days and that's generally the way I do it and when they're not, you know, they're kind of packed away and hidden away and you know, they don't look too obtrusive, I don't think, but... That's it. I but think you've that... never been a collector, Dan. I find mm. I find you're a kind of... Uh, a kind of guy that likes to play with the machines, fiddle with the hardware. You're, you're more of a hardware guy. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And a lot of it is kind of, you know, stuff that I wanted as a kid that 
I couldn't afford that. Yeah, or, yeah. You know, and, and now when you're an adult and the prices have gone down, you've got a job and all that. You know, my Amiga 4000 I bought like last year or year before yeah. last as it was now. I remember reading about the Amiga 4000 when it first came out in like a in Amiga format. And I think, oh, that looks so... I had Amiga 500 at home at the time. Then I saw the price. It was like, you know, two or three thousand pounds. I was like, yeah, never going to happen then. Yeah. It took 20 years when I eventually got one. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. But, um, well, that's the same with me. I'm currently started a CD32 collection yeah. to get every single game boxed because um, I never had one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wanted one, <laughs> you know, and I wanted every game. So uh, it's interesting. Yeah. It's, so it's, I think there is a fine line, though, between uh, yeah, collecting and hoarding. Love to you know get some thoughts as well. You know if, if you if you if you've got an opinion on uh, is it collecting or hoarding? We'd like to know how many. Yeah, if you have got. got a lot of machines and you can you know tell us what you're doing with them, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do post the uh, show on SoundCloud every week as well, and it's really cool because you can actually comment on the timeline. You know, we're talking about stuff. So yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's worked quite well actually, and we've got some good comments coming in at the moment. And uh, the final topic this week, then um, talking about I mentioned before on Lemon sixty four, mm-hmm. um, the I don't know how you pronounce this. I think it's Casape. The Casape C64 adapter. Yeah, Casape. Casape. So (laughs) what this essentially is, is it's a a cassette tape interface for the Commodore 64 that plugs into the cassette port, and it's mainly used for loading uh, tape files. So rather than having, you know, your old cassette player, you load your files off that. Mm. And as far as the Commodore 64 assumes, it's loading off original tapes. Well, Well, also you can do that with an MP3, can't you? So, so yeah. you can get an iPod and just stick it in with the data files, and if you've yeah. got an, yeah an audio interface yeah. into it. But this thing, I think it's about four or four, four, four or five times the speed of the original cassette player. Okay, uh, but also it's got this really cool kind of um, GPIO port on the back as well that you can hack other projects into and stuff. Yeah. As guys have made like USB ports and all that. But this video is a couple of years old. The reason that I'm talking about it now is it actually got featured on. Um, one of the Commodore sites is kind of a spotlight of the week. Okay. I think it was on our Commodore Plus 4 World they were talking about it. And there's a guy who's posted the video. He runs his home automation <laughs> off a Commodore 64 and a Casio Pay. That, that's amazing. That so, is yeah. really good. He's got his C64 set up in his bedroom. It's all linked kind of, you know, via R, uh, infrared or RF. So he posts a video of him sleeping and he shows a display of his Commodore 64 and there's a countdown and then it triggers his, uh, like an MP3 to play across the room on an MP3 player. It turns on his lights, <laughs> fires a signal into the kitchen, the toaster starts coming on, and starts frying his breakfast and all that. But <laughs> That's excellent. And then you get this raspy kind of, you know, SID, SID chip-generated Commodore 64 voice going, time to wake up. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. He's living the dream, man. Living the dream. Home automation dream. <laughs> he could have done that. I saw that and I thought, hmm, my 64 is just sitting there unused at the moment. So I said yeah. to my girlfriend, I thought, I've got a little project. She goes, can you do that one of those Raspberry Pi things? I'm like, yeah, but nowhere near as much fun. Come on. Yeah, yeah, you know, that'll be it. You want the girlfriend to be waking up terrified with, <laughs> <laughs> wake up, this is C64. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, yeah, the, the toaster is set on fire in the other room or something. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, one last thing to talk about, Ravi? Yeah, um... We're on the C64, and there was a, a thing called the C64 Orchestra, yes. which was a, a full orchestra recreating C64 tunes, and this was involving Rob Hubbard. And on the video as well, we actually have Alistair Brimble, who was our guest last our, week. Yeah. Our guest last week, yeah. And uh, orchestras and music, old school game music, they've just done um, The Legend of Zelda, Symphony of the Goddess, and uh, it's got... Um, a performance from the London Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Wow. 
and they're going to be doing Zelda tunes. It's <laughs> got <laughs> like proper full performance. Yeah, in it. yeah, wow, okay. yeah. That you can actually go and see in London. That's amazing, though, isn't it? Video games are art these days, though, aren't they? It's an art form, so. Uh... Yeah, you know, and this is a celebrating video game music. You know, I think it doesn't get that much recognition usually, and it's good to see high-end orchestras and, you know... Kind you're of, doing 8-bit songs, you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I remember seeing them um, doing um, Monty on the Run. Oh, wow, That's okay. particularly yeah, yeah, good, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, listen, guys, thank you so much for checking out episode two of The Retro Hour. You can download the show every week from SoundCloud. Just search for The Retro Hour or our website, theretrohour.com. And uh, very soon we're going to be on the Google Play Store as well, although I try to upload it there. It's only for America at the moment, apparently. Oh, so, yeah, uh, America get it first. Exactly, Just yeah, like so. Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever Google roll that out, we'll be on there as well. But obviously, you know, keep an eye out. Every Friday, the show is going to be out as a little gift to you before the weekend. And uh, keep it here, because next we're going to have a fascinating talk to John Hare from Sensible Software. And we will catch you next week. Yeah, catch you next week, guys. Listening to the Retro Hour, and it's time for this week's special guest. Now, I've got to say, you know, personally, as someone who grew up playing the Commodore Amiga, games like Sensible Soccer, Cannon Fodder, really, really fond memories of those games. And uh, we're really proud to have on the show John Hare, formerly of Sensible Software. So we'll start right at the beginning, John. What first got you into gaming? What got me into games? Oh, I started working in games when I was about uh, 18 or 19. and I, I didn't have a job. I was uh, playing in a band with a friend of mine, uh, an old school friend, and he started to teach himself to program, and neither of us had proper jobs. I worked at Asda. I don't really count that. <laughs> um, he managed to get a programming contract with somebody. He was stuck on some art, some graphics for a game on the ZX81 he was doing, and I helped him out, and um, they liked my work and offered me a job. And about a year later, a year of working, sort of contract work for this small company in Basildon in Essex, we set up our own company, which was Sensible Software. Was the ZX, ZX81 your first platform you worked on then, was it? Very first, but I didn't do very much. I did a few little graphics, but then we did a, I did a, a few bits of, like, bits and bobs of graphics for different games like Trivial Pursuit and um, Flyer Fox on uh, Spectrum. I worked on an, an early but unpublished version of International Karate. Um, did some myself and Chris did a game called Twister my, my partner Chris Yates did a game called Twister which was my first game on the Spectrum with me and him working together as a two and then we set Sensible up did Parallax then Wizborn then Shimmer Construction Game Micro Soccer etc etc Working on a platform like the ZX81 though that must have been pretty challenging doing graphics and sound on that uh, Actually in, in a lot of ways those early platforms were much easier because there were less, less decisions and options you only had what they gave you. Uh, certainly programming-wise, things were a lot easier. Quite closed systems, so you could spend a lot more time focusing on the gameplay mm -hmm. rather than the technical side. Interestingly, we probably, with the help of tools like Unity, we're, we're, we're back nearer to where we were then, now. There was a long period in the middle with consoles where you spent all your focus working on uh, making the 3D work, and for the last 25% of the work was making the game, which for, as a game designer, which I am, I'm not a programmer, meant that I spent a lot of time very bored and frustrated waiting for everyone to get the graphics to display so I could do my work. You know, obviously looking back at like the 8 and 16-bit days, back then it was really possible to make, you know, a commercial game with just a couple of people. Now you often need like, you know, like movie studio <laughs> size development teams. Did you find it was um, easier to work back then? Oh, well, it's very interesting. I mean, it's it's... I mean, I've been doing this 30 years, right? So I can see it from I can see a lot of different eras in, in, in my mind. 
Chris and I started off with just a two-man team. We added a third guy, then a fourth, fifth. We got up to six. So our best team size was six. And we'd be doing two or three games at once. Oh, but that's when we did, like, Sensible Soccer, Cannon Fodder, Megalomania, WizKid. All those games came from that six-man team. But we did two games at a time. So the teams were still only two or three people, two or three core people per game. And then you'd have Richard Joseph doing sound with us. A guy called Mike Hammond did a lot of football data and, you know, various other people you'd have coming in. When we got up to uh, Sensible Soccer 98, our 3D football game, the team went up a bit further to about six or seven people. Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll was about 12 or 13, maybe no, maybe as high as 15. That never came out, obviously. Yeah. And then you go on to some of the, the big console teams have just been getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Now they're in the hundreds, as we know. Um, but depends on what platforms you're looking at. On the mobile side, I've been working a lot in mobile recently. Again, the team sizes have been back to similar kind of sizes that we had in the Amiga uh, or early console eras. It was, it, was the, it was the early 3D era that really um, took the manpower programming-wise. And now a lot of manpower is spent on art and on things like customer support and all that kind of stuff. I think now you've got a vast range of platforms. You can make a game as a... If you look at um, Sam Barlow, who did her story, that's, that's virtually a one-man game. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you've got uh, Assassin's Creed, which is, I don't know, 500 people, who knows? Now, getting back to Sensible, one question I often see asked on the forums is, why was it called Sensible Soccer, not like, you know, Sensible Football or something? Oh, Sensible Soccer was because we were Sensible Software, and it kind of went. Yeah. It was just a shameless way of putting our name out there, I think. Um, actually, we did a game called Micropro Soccer in 1988. I remember that, yeah. And we actually wanted to call that Sensible Soccer, but Microprose, who offered us quite a lot of money at the time, said they wanted to call, be called Micropro Soccer, so we said okay and took the money. Um, <laughs> okay. And when, uh, when we came to, to, to do Sensible Soccer, we got a very good offer from Virgin on the table as well. But they wanted to call the game Virgin Soccer. And we said, you know what? No, we want to call it Sensible Soccer, please. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what actually what happened. So, ah, okay. That, that uh, sounds really good because I remember one kind of lasting legacy of uh, Sensible Soccer was that people were still updating it, you know, religiously every year up to, you know, still the late 2000s. You, they still oh, they are. still are, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it was you'd always get an Amiga format, these uh, up, updated discs, or, you know, the latest <laughs> rosters. Are you ever surprised at the legacy of Sensible Soccer? Not really. I think at the time it came out, it was kind of groundbreaking. Uh, I think FIFA, uh, sorry, Kickoff was very good. Kickoff particularly was very good before we came out. But no, I think the timing was right. I think it was a great, very playable game. The timing was right for it. And I think when we, when we put Swass out, we really nailed it. We, we took it up another level mm-hmm. you know there's so many teams and such a realistic and the whole world man- of management on there was uh, immense as well and you know people that love sensi soccer back in the day will be really interested in this uh, new project you've been working on that's been a kickstarter uh, sociable soccer absolutely yeah and that's very much what we want to do with sociable soccer is build another football franchise so the first release would be more like sensible soccer in content with the online play added and then when we get to the second or third release we'll hopefully we'll be able to have the kind of like swast style career elements and transfer market and that but people must remember that took three years to make yeah um at the moment we're looking at five platforms that ranges right from you know ios android up to pc ps4 and xbox one they're the five platforms we're looking at and the real challenges are okay you've got a core very playable very fast football game but that can be you know that that can be treated in different ways at the moment We've got it working on PC really well. Uh, the basic gameplay I'm talking about now, not 
all the menus and everything like that, or it's not working online at the moment, but the, the basic uh, player versus player um, PC game, play, the gameplay is quite solid. And it's also working relatively well on iPad at the moment um, with uh, against uh, some basic AI. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where we are now, and then we're going to add in more sophisticated AI. This is, this is how a game works. So you start with the football playing part, which is the, the key part, which is great. But then how do you treat that? So around social soccer, for example, we're wrapping um, 600 different teams, 400 club teams, 200 national teams, and a whole bunch of custom sides and silly things like this. Loads of online leagues uh, for clubs, for countries, for um, like fantasy kind of clans. Um, so you've got online to deal with with five platforms. That's that sounds. It's a quick sentence to say. It's a colossal amount of work to make it work properly, to make it run fast. Getting them um, to talk to each other as well, I guess. That's, uh... It's just a nightmare. In fact, the programmers have said we don't want to try with the first release to make Android talk to Xbox One. Please, can we not do that for first release? That's one of the few things they've they've said to me. If we want this out, kind of this time next year. It's, you can't do that quick. You've got to do it stage by stage. So. <laughs> well, looking back as well, John, obviously, you know, Sensible was, uh, you know, you had other big hits like Cannon Fodder, for example, was one of my favourite games on the Amiga. Uh-huh. And I always found that, you know, if you actually played Cannon Fodder, it had quite a strong anti-war message. But I remember there's a lot of, you know, a lot of papers were accusing the game of promoting war and getting outraged of it. How did you feel about all that back then? Um, <clears throat> at the time, we were just trying to get the game finished off <laughs> when they were that kicked off. Um, I think that <clears throat> in those times... The media had just woken up to games existing uh, and didn't really like it and uh, and wanted to condemn what we were doing. And we're very uh, quick to jump on the bandwagon of games being uh, violent and uh, being antisocial and bad things in general. I think it was a pity for them they didn't bother to look at Cannon Fodder as a game. Mm-hmm. They, they picked on the wrong game, basically. I think they saw you as more kind of edgy and controversial. And I kind of saw you as more Monty Python kind of parody, you know. <laughs> I think I think that I think you're right. I mean, I think as, a, as yeah, I, I hope that people who played our games understood where we came from. But the reason it kicked off is because we used um, the uh, poppy on the, the cover of Cannonfire, yeah, yeah. the original cover. We got a letter from the Royal British Legion saying that they were going to sue us because it was their copyright. Oh God! <laughs> That's why it kicked off. So then they went to us being insulting young upstarts, blah 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 blah, and. Uh, it's quite funny that years later, people are saying, you know what, how many other anti-war games have there been? And they just picked on the wrong game, you know? Well, I, I think you started a lot of themes as well with um, Sensible. So, you know, like the first tech tree on Megalomania and you're saying, you know, Cannon Fodder was yeah. an anti-war kind of game. Can you think of any other stuff that uh, you were kind of... We first? did, it was a first. Um, oh, yes, uh, I think... We were very lucky because in those days, obviously, it was early days in making games and we were all making things up as we went along. Yeah. And uh, I think Cannon Fodder was, okay, we want to get in the politics of it. Virgin at the time had a big battle between Virgin US and Virgin Europe going on. Command and Conquer took a lot of the limelight. Cannon Fodder came out before Command and Conquer. And uh, I think it's fair to say that June was there. I think June was out before Cannon Fodder was. Mm-hmm. But as RTSs go, Cannon Fodder was quite an early RTS, in my opinion. Was it 92, um, was it? 93. November 93. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Sensible World of Soccer uh, set the benchmark for realistic sports worlds in games. Uh, you know, so, uh, Sensible World of Soccer. Sensible Soccer was the, the first game to have black footballers in it. Or black sportsmen, I think. Wow. I don't know about NBA. Surely NBA had black basketball players. You'd hope so. 
<laughs> I hope so. But I remember playing with like John Barnes, and he was white, you know, for Liverpool. Not a Liverpool fan. Um, and uh, that didn't seem right. And, and we went about just making an accurate world of football. And actually, even our crazy international 3D tennis game we did uh, a couple of years earlier, that had a totally realistic tennis world behind it. You know, with the all the players correct, all the prize money for every tournament correct, all the dates around the world. And uh, so that was, I guess, something innovative. What else? Yeah, as you mentioned, the tech tree in Megalomania. Megalomania also was one of the first games to have speech in it. Cannon Fodder was one of the first games to have a theme tune. I think it was the first to have a th- proper theme tune. With yeah, it was some, wasn't it? Yeah, vocals, yeah. And what a theme tune. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that, was, that, was, um, that was me. I wrote the original tune, and Richard Joseph turned it into sounding really good. Uh, Wizkid, I guess, is a one-off. I don't know if you know Wizkid. Uh, yeah, that's... Yeah, with the ball, isn't it? That's. Uh, I think yeah. no one's ever made a game like Wizkid before or since. It's the craziest game we made. Um, I don't know what else we did. Shoot em up construction kit. Yeah. Uh, I, re- I remember that. Make your own games, yeah. Yeah, creating quite a Making few. your own games. There was someone who had done a construction kit before then, I think, and I can't remember what it was called. There but... was also a 3D construction kit, wasn't there? That, was, uh... that came afterwards, yeah. must have done. Uh, but there was, there was, I think there might have been one construction kit kind of thing before it, but it was certainly quite early at that. I think we, yeah, I think that there was, there was real room to innovate. And to me, that's the real shame of what's happening on mobile now is what's really happened is that we've, We've opened the medium up via those platforms to people who aren't very creative putting apps out there. So 90% of apps are just copies and, and bad copies of better stuff. I mean, they, they have got no artistic right to exist at all. You know, artistically, you either do something new or you do something, it's a copy of something else, but it's a better version of it. These, these are two acceptable things to do. So if you look at Candy Crush, uh, it's a really, really good match three game. It has a right to exist for that reason. It's a better version of something done before. Uh, if you look at Monument Valley, it's a great original game. It's nice. Uh, but if you look, even if you, well, if you look at Flappy Bird, <laughs> which is about one tenth of a Mario level from 1984, <laughs> uh, I'm not so sure. I think Flappy Bird was a weird anomaly. Um, but then you look at Flappy Bird copies, and there's thousands of them, and you wonder why uh, why these platform holders have so little pride in their platforms they allow these things to exist on them and i think there's a there's a really big artistic problem at the moment which is quite frankly destroying mobile as a viable platform for a lot of developers uh, unless they've got big 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 money behind them i think a lot of people as well that they see it as it kind of get rich don't they if you know we can have the next version of this and like you said they'll put out any old crap thinking they might get lucky with it i think i think what's happened is is the globalization of development in action so if you if you you know i don't know if you um if you're a british developer and you're working for a year on a game uh on your own and you put it out and you make two thousand pound back and you didn't earn at all anything else that year, you're likely to consider it probably a pretty bad financial year, right? If you live in Indonesia and you do the same thing, that £2,000 might go a long way to supporting you and your family. And I, th- and I think kind of where we are now is that we're in a globalised world where the money made on these platforms is worth very, relatively little to us as Westerners. And a lot of people in other countries, the money goes further for them in these countries. An app store with no physical cost of goods, with... Uh, digital transfer of money worldwide, suddenly the, the platforms are open to them. But also, there's, there's more than that. A lot of countries will tell you they don't care about copying. It's fine. Mm-hmm. They copy stuff. Look at what Chinese manufacturers have been doing for the last 25 years. Copying things, doing them cheaper. Uh, the same, I spoke to a, a banking guy from Turkey once who told me the same about Turkey. You know, Turkish people 
they're mostly interested in trading. And if they can make something relatively cheap, which is reasonable quality, and sell bucket loads of it, great. If you ask me, I'd rather not make a game than it'd be bad, because it would just destroy my reputation. Well, I think you've got a really interesting point about the globalisation of gaming, because um, there's this recent video uh, on African video games by Kim Justice. I'll add uh-huh. it in the links. And they're saying that, you know, they haven't had these game industries at all in Africa, but recently they've started doing these mobile apps, and it's, you know, very small, but it's enabled these guys to actually make a living, and it's kind of... They've got a tiny but small emerging industry, and I guess this is being replicated around the world at the moment. Absolutely. I mean, I've been working... I mean, for the last 10 years, I've worked in uh, Ukraine for two years. I worked in Turkey... I worked in um, Poland for five the last five years. Recently, I've only just stopped working in Poland. And uh, the, 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 there's many issues in these countries, and and the, the main issues are to do with um, the understanding of what's expected in the commercial world from products and the, the the quality bar that people are setting themselves. So, I grew up working with computer geniuses who, you know, we were making the number one games across Europe. And our standards were incredibly high. And then you suddenly come across people who just want to join a party. So getting back to you, John, what would you say, looking back through your career, has been kind of your you know, preferred or favourite platforms to work on? Oh, for, for, from a development point of view, um, the Amiga. Hands down, the Amiga. I absolutely loved it because, you know, we had our golden years on the Amiga with uh, Megalomania, Sensible Soccer, Cannon Fodder, Whizball, sorry, Kid. Mm-hmm. Those four games are four of my favourite games we made, and they're all Amiga. Um, next would be Commodore 64 with Wizball, Micro Soccer and Shimmer Construction Kit. But from a player point of view, the Amiga, but I've got a soft spot for a console for the N64 actually. I don't really know why, it's just, um, it was the first one that I really got my teeth into because I was on home computers for so long and particularly when Mario 64 came out. Yeah. That for me was the wow moment of gaming. When you suddenly went, wow, look what you can do. It was the, the biggest the, the biggest uh, eye-opener I, I can remember was that particular game. So, you know, and there's so many great games on that that, that console. So, yeah, but it's, we've all got our own funny little timings when we first got into music, games, books, films, whatever, and we tend to have our tastes. I find it interesting that with music, my taste is really old. I'm kind of like 70s music is more what I would choose to listen to as an era, if you like. Okay. Although I listen to a wide range of music. But with films, I'm very modern. I, I'll go back... You know, most of my favourite films are within the last five or ten years. So it depends. And with games, I guess, I guess the the, the peak period for me would have been maybe um, some games on yeah those early consoles or PC uh, about fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, probably. How, how did the downfall of Commodore affect you? Really badly. We were the top developer on the Commodore sixty four in the world uh, when when the Commodore sixty four uh, stopped. We then transitioned to the Amiga, and we were probably the top developer in the world on the Amiga when it fell apart and um we left we left 2d art we, we left the, the 2d home computer world two years after everyone else because we were doing so well on um in the, this year the, the last year sorry there's been a number of amiga 30th birthday parties kicking around and I had the pleasure to meet three of the guys who actually the three guys who made the amiga mm-hmm. and uh you know these are all american guys uh and uh they never even experienced this game thing over in the States at all. It was seen as a video toaster in the States. Yeah, yeah, they were and, clueless uh, about the success in Europe. Uh, you know, they were kind them, of shocked. They couldn't believe it. You know, that, that I think it took for them to, for us to go to a couple of things and then to see that people were going, well, 
we loved your games, for them to even realise the impact that it had in the gaming world. Because for them, I mean, it was a genuine surprise that someone had taken their baby, if you like, and had turned it into something totally different. I remember the uh, intake of breath when someone mentioned how many magazines they were selling a month, Amiga magazines <laughs> in the UK, and they were just astonished. It was Well, it, it, it's very interesting how occasionally you can make something. If, if, if I take that analogy from, if you take the Amiga and then say we made Shoot'em Up construction kit on it, and then someone else made a game from that, you have, you have different levels of creativity which get passed down. You don't always know where, where what you've made with your own vision for it, what someone else has made of it or done with it. It's, it's quite a beautiful thing about creating things. Well, given your success on the Amiga, what was your opinion of the Atari ST? <sighs> Honestly, without pissing a lot of people off, um, <laughs> like a poor cousin. Yeah. Um, I think that's it was fair. A, it, was, it was a good shape for a door wedge. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think, I think it was okay, and it was, it was a... It was a reasonable. It was a reasonable format for us. It's probably our second format in the Amiga years, and then the Mega Drive as well. As I said, you know, near the start, I'm a game designer. To me, I don't get excited about conversions of games. I know it sounds weird to people, but I'm sure J.K. Rowling wasn't that excited about the translation of Harry Potter to Portuguese. So, it's kind uh, of how I view conversions of games. I view them as damage limitation. It's a bit like where we are now. You know, working on a game at the moment, which is basically made for trying to make it for touchscreens because it's a game made for control pads. Mm -hmm. But that's a great challenge because I know with this engine we can do it. It's, it's good to hear about your confidence in the engine because I've been looking at Sensible Software in the kind of end period of it when it was in the 3D. And mm -hmm. uh, there was a thing that you said, you know, you need to have the technology done before the actual, you know, games created. And uh, it, it seemed that that 3D period was what caused the downfall of a sense it was horrendous it was you know i mean for example with, with social soccer i'm working with a great team in finland who are an amalgam of several decent uh, individuals from several very successful finnish teams so we've got the, the talent and the team and we're also using unity and you know unity basically means your 3d world works on multiple platforms yeah. so for me as a designer that's great i don't mind the challenge where you're working with the hardware to make it work properly from a designer's perspective like making the touchscreen work really well and i yeah, like that yeah because that's got kind of design elements hasn't it uh and, and i've i've made you know the last last five years i've been working on mobile games and uh, uh as well as steam games and uh ps plus games so I've got the experience in those areas to know how those machines work now, which is very lucky for me that I can combine that with my experience on home computers and consoles and PCs. I've done one free-to-play game to date, so um, I think I've got room to improve there. So uh, that's probably, in terms of design, my area of least experience at the moment. How, how do but, you feel about uh, free-to-play games? My, my my feeling about it changes all the time. Right now, my view with uh, Sociable Soccer is if we, you know, at the moment we're, we're talking to a number of different potential uh, publishing partners, some of which would prefer free-to-play, some of which wouldn't prefer free-to-play. From, from the point of view of the game, it actually doesn't matter too much in terms of the actual football side of it. You know, you're going to be playing a football game, whatever. I think for certain platforms, if people think free-to-play is better and more importantly if they can give us a competitive publishing deal in a nice advance i don't mind it doesn't really matter i mean <clears throat> the advantage of going free-to-play is you're going to hit a lot more people yeah. you know a lot more people will play the game the chance of establishing the brand alongside fifa and pro evo as the leading football brands is stronger if it's free-to-play because more people will give it a chance 
I know once I give it a chance, I'll love the game. When can we expect the game out then? Social Soccer uh, will be uh, ready around roughly... We don't know because it depends on who we publish with this issue answer. Mm-hmm. So we're likely to either sign a multi-platform deal uh, with one publisher or separate out the console and the mobile stuff. When we know who we're working with and we know what kind of publishing strategy they're going to put in place, we'll know roughly the completion dates. I would have thought by this time next year, all the platforms should kind of be complete or near to completion. Mm-hmm. But whether they'll be published then, you know, with the, in the world of games, Christmas is a pretty vicious time to try and publish against established uh, franchises. So it'll be Easter if we're late. <laughs> Post-Christmas <laughs> period, if we decide that the football season uh, is too quick. Uh, Christmas if we've got a fortune in marketing. And the early, uh, uh, the football season start next football season if development goes really well and uh, someone wants to do that. But I, I doubt we'll have all five platforms ready for the start of the football season. That's going to be too much work in too short a period of time. Well, I'm looking forward to trying to get Forrest to the top of the league again. <laughs> I hope you can, mate. I hope you and millions of others are going to try and do the same. But I hope Norwich win. As a Norwich fan, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted at the moment because we've finally hit a bit of a uh, rich reign of form. We had a great win over Southampton. Nice. And, uh, yeah, uh, but... So, what we'll, I love so about we'll be playing against fans, each other then. <laughs> as fans, we just love to play for you know, support and play for our club. And that's what we're trying to deliver with uh, Social Soccer is the ability for you to just go in and every day play for your club to push them up the league. Thank you very much, and John. Okie dokie. A pleasure, guys. You're a gold, you're a superstar hero.